0: Well, I am honored to be here and I do count it an honor each time we stand behind this pulpit. So good to see family here and what a delight to once again see Brother Mrs. Perry and Brother Mrs. Asire faithfully serving God. That's just wonderful. And so many familiar faces. If you would take your Bible and look with me to 2 Peter chapter 1 When we look at a celebration of 60 years of ministry, I am so grateful to those who had a vision to plant a church in beautiful Yucca Valley. And I appreciate, too, that the sign out by the street does not have the word beautiful italicized. You think about that? It is beautiful Yucca Valley. I got that because when we drove in from the west, cresting the hill, there was a sign for years that was there that said, welcome to beautiful Yucca Valley. And I don't know if you remember that sign or not. I think it now has uh, Hawks Landing and the golf course uh, advertised on that billboard. But it said, welcome to beautiful Yucca Valley. And uh, again, I appreciate the fact that the sign doesn't have it in quotes, uh, beautiful or italicized as if it's some kind of an oxymoron. This is a beautiful place. You know, when you go to a place for the first time too, you notice all sorts of things that people who have been here for a while maybe have forgotten. I noticed that all the Joshua trees were leaning in a particular direction. Did you ever notice that? The Joshua trees aren't growing straight. They're leaning. They're leaning. Uh, leaning because of the prevalent winds. I found that interesting. I see that there's a lot of green out here. People don't think that there's green in the desert. And at times of the year I suppose there isn't. But there's a lot of green out here. And it's just a beautiful place. Love, love the wind. Have found uh, the opportunity to embrace the wind. and Stop resisting it. But embrace the wind. And uh, keeps the smog from L.A. out of our city. So that's good. And I appreciate the fact that it's a dry climate. Nowhere else in America, practically, can you open a bag of, of tortilla chips and forget to close the bag. And the next day they are as crisp as when you opened it. It's an amazing thing. I miss the mosquitoes, said no one ever in Yucca Valley. So that's a good thing. So lots of good things about the area in which we live. Lots of good things. God's gracious to give us a love for where He has called us. Well we do have wind. In our backyard we have a fence. And the wind rattles that fence. And from time to time I need to get a hammer and go out and inspect the fence before the slats fall off. If they have fallen off I put them back on. If they're loosened I hammer the nails in, although lately I've taken to taking a screw gun and drywall screws instead of a hammer and nails. It holds those slats a lot more firmly for a longer period of time. We live in a day and age where our cultural winds can rattle believers. We live in a day and age where our cultural climate can have an impact on American Christendom and is having an impact. Every other year, Lifeway Research and Ligonier's Ministry team up to conduct a survey. The last time they conducted this survey was in 2022. It is a survey of theology in America. There were basically 35 statements on the survey. And those who were surveyed had the opportunity to poll whether they whether they strongly agreed with the statement, mildly agreed with the statement, had no uh, no decision one way or the other, mildly disagreed or strongly disagreed, um, with, uh, uh, from strongly agree, mildly agree, half and half, mildly disagree, strongly disagree. There we go. So, thirty over three thousand people, over three thousand people were surveyed, and the results of that twenty twenty two survey of theology in America are rather disturbing. They're rather disturbing. For example, statement number three said this, God accepts the worship of all religions including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. That was a statement. God accepts the worship of all religions including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Now, the survey surveyed those who didn't go to church, surveyed those who had no uh, religious inclination, but it also included those who were evangelicals in the United States. And I know that could be a broad term. But when you think of that statement, statement number three, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity and Judaism and Islam. Among the U.S. evangelicals surveyed, 56% of them agreed with that statement, Fifty three percent of the fifty six percent of them agreed with the statement that God accepts the worship of all religions. That's what I said. Wow. Well what happened to John chapter four where Jesus said God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What happened to the very foundational book, the book of Genesis, where you have Cain bringing an offering to the Lord in worship and you have Abel bring an offering to the Lord in worship and God disregards Cain's offering but, but, uh, regards, uh, but has respect toward Abel's offering. There's a problem. Statement number four, God learns and adapts to different circumstances. God learns and adapts to different circumstances. Of the U.S. Evangelicals uh, surveyed, 48% of them agreed with that statement that God learns and adapts to circumstances. And yet when we look in the word of God, we find out that our God is omniscient and that He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. Our God is unchangeable. God does not learn. I like what Dr. Curtis Hudson used to say. He was the editor of The Sword of the Lord for a number of years. He used to say, did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? (laughs) That's the truth. I I like that. Statement number seven. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Of the U.S. Evangelical Survey, 43% of them agreed with that statement, 43% agreed with the, with the statement that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Why? My, uh, the Gospel of John makes it very clear that our Savior was not just a great teacher. He was indeed deity wrapped in human flesh. He was God dwelling among us. Statement number 15, Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Statement number 15. Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Of the U.S. Evangelical Survey, 65% of them agreed with that statement. Are we born innocent? We're not. We're born in sin. We're born in sin. We're born in sin's bondage. We are sinners through and through by nurture and by nature. It's not that man is, is born good and does bad things every once in a while. We are, we are born sinners. We're born sinners. There are times where man can act nobly. We understand that. There are times when man can rise to an occasion and act nobly. But that's not an indication of, of the presence or lack of a sin nature. It is instead the evidence that a man is made in the image of God. But we are born sinners. We're born in sin. So there's a problem. But when there's a problem, God always has a plan. When there's a problem, God always has a plan. May I direct your attention to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. And the Bible says, wherefore, Peter writes, wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. Verse 16, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice from the, uh, to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This voice and this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. I want to pause there for a moment. Peter says it is fitting for me to remind you of things that you already know. Peter writes, the reason for that is so that after I put off this, my tabernacle, after I have gone into glory, after I have died, that you may continue to remember the things that are important. 15 says to have these things always in remembrance. And Peter reminds them of the source of the things that he teaches them. They're not cunningly devised fables. These do not come from the heart of men. We read how that Peter was an eyewitness of Jesus majesty. You and I remember that account from from the, the mount. We call it the mount of transfiguration where Jesus glory the glory attached to his deity the glory that manifested his deity shined through him. And they also heard the voice of the father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That was Peter's experience. But Peter goes beyond his experience to the word of God. You see it here in verse nine. We have also a more sure word of prophecy whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We are a forgetful people. And I believe that the 2022 survey on theology in America reveals that we are a forgetful people. God knows that we are forgetful. We forget important things. Have you ever forgotten something important? Have you ever forgotten an anniversary? Have you ever forgotten a birthday? You forgot it once, didn't you? And then you did everything you could to remember that anniversary after that. Years ago, Paul Mason and, and Jaron, they were, they were married and, they, and I think he cheated. They were married on November 11th in 2011. That's cheating, sir. 11, 11, 11, you will never forget your wedding anniversary. Oh, that we could all have that luxury of remembering that way. Ever, ever forget a child? Ever forget a child at church? I think the Aesirs may have done that once. Kenny was asleep on a pew. And uh, the buildings were locked up, the lights were out. And when everybody got home, they took a head count. And he was missing And they came back and he was asleep right where they left him, asleep right there. And uh, so, yeah, we we do forget sometimes. We do forget. And by the way, that sermon CD is still available should your children have trouble sleeping. (laughs) There is a warning not to operate it, excuse me, not to listen to it while you're operating heavy equipment. We are, we are a people who are forgetful. We can forget even the most important, the most important event on the planet. We could let the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus slip from our minds. That's why God in His wisdom, mandated that we gather from time to time around the Lord's table to remember His death until He comes. We are a forgetful people. As the wind blows, the fence slats loosen. As the, as the wind blows, the fence slats loosen. At times we need to go into a chiropractor and have the back adjusted. I suggest to you that there is a backbone for a church that allows it to stand. <clears throat> and that backbone is made up of a variety, a variety of truths. So what I want to do in the uh, few moments that we have left is just in a quick, quick way, give you essential non-negotiables for a local church to be able to stand in the day and age in which we live. Essential non-negotiables that would enable the church to stand in the day and age in which we live. And I believe that these have been woven into the fabric of Calvary Baptist Church since her beginning. And so let's begin with essential non-negotiable number one. We must have a high view of God. We must have a high view of God. A high view of God. We we Go to uh, Isaiah chapter six in our minds. Isaiah chapter six and Isaiah chapter six verses one through eight. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. And when he does the glory of the Lord fills the place that Isaiah sees. There are these creatures called seraphim that have six wings and, and, and not only do they have six wings, which they cover their, their uh, ears with and their eyes and they fly with two, but they also, they also are saying something. Holy, holy, holy. And they refer to God as holy. And Isaiah sees this. He sees this. And as Isaiah sees this, it, in a sense, terrifies him. It terrifies him. Think about that for a moment. We sometimes talk about revival. And we pray for revival and we should. We need revival in America. What is revival? What is that? Is it a warm, fuzzy feeling? I suppose it could be to some degree. Is it, a, is it where there's not a dry eye in the place? Is that what revival is? Is revival an explosion and evangelistic efforts? Is that what revival is? Revival, from what we understand as Scripture, happens people of God get back on track. Here's how revival happens is when there is an encounter with God. And what happens when there's an encounter with God? There is seriousness about the things of God when there's an encounter with God. Isaiah had a high view of God and that that was, that in Isaiah chapter 6, that resulted in some things. It resulted, one, when Isaiah caught a glimpse of what God was like, Isaiah saw his own uncleanness, his own corruption, his own pollution. And when he saw that, he didn't just go off his merry way, he confessed it before the Lord. He said, woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And after that confrontation and after that corruption and after that confession, then there was cleansing. It's an unusual passage where where one of the seraphim takes some tongs and pulls pulls uh, coal off of an altar that was there, a fiery coal off of an altar and places it to Isaiah's lips and and he's declared to be clean. And after that cleansing, then he is in a position to listen to the voice of God and God says, who can I send for us? Who will go? And then Isaiah is in a place where he could say, I will go. But all of that stems, all of that stems from having a high view of God, a high view of God. What does it mean to have a high view of God? It means to think great thoughts of God. To have a high view of God means we take God seriously. To have a high view of God means that we hold him in reverence, that we fear him. Boy, there's a constant effort these days to remove God from his throne. There's a constant effort to make him our servant who must do whatever it is that we command him to do. People today are irreverent. And in fact, I'm afraid that sometimes that's even a mark of alleged worship is irreverence. It's marked by irreverence. They think that anything that produces a warm, sentimental feeling is worship. There ought to be a sense at times where we tremble at God's word. We at times do not let ourselves be confronted by God's holiness. And and in having a high view of God, that means, too, we have a high view of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ministries today are anthropological. They're man centered. What does man want? Having a high view of God means that a ministry is theocentric and crystal centric. That at the center of it all is is God and His Son keeping our eyes on Him. But that's the first thing And our times fleeting. That's the first non-essential quality. A high view of God. Let's develop that. Let's develop that. Let's be in the Word of God. Let's let God reveal Himself to us. A high view of God. You and I realize if we have a high view of God it really puts everything else in perspective. A high view of God means that we understand that God is ultimately in control, that God does have a plan and that God does accompany us, those of us who know Him, that God does accompany us as He unfolds His plan, that His will is best, His will is great, His will is perfect. And so having a high view of God really adjusts a lot of our thinking. A.W. Tozer said, the thing that comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. The thing that comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Hmm. You ask the average guy, what's the most important thing about you? Well, I have this career, I have this job. Somebody says the most important thing is my family. Somebody says the most important thing is my faith. Tozer says it is the thoughts that we have of God that are most important and obviously so because they color everything else, they influence everything else. Wherever we go, it seems like we have the opportunity to talk about the importance of knowing God, not just knowing about Him, but knowing Him. Not just knowing God things or God's scriptures, but knowing Him, knowing Him. And it seems like that the closer we are to Him, the bigger He is, the farther away from Him we are, the smaller He is. I was floating, Terry and I were floating into a glacier bay years ago, 2007. You hear about the glaciers. I don't remember which bay it was, but... We were floating into this bay. We're floating between mountains. Mountains were majestic. The glaciers off at the end of the bay and they looked rather weak. They looked rather insignificant. They did not look majestic. But the closer we got, the bigger they got. And they got really close and they were really big. There were little birds flying around the face of the glacier without any concern for their own safety or welfare. Not knowing that they were in danger. Just little dots. Then you would hear the glacier calve. You would hear the ice break off with a thunderous boom that echoed off the mountains of the canyon. And and then you would see that chunk of ice fall into the bay and create just a great wave. Oh, the power, the power. And there is a principle there that, that I learned that the closer, this is really profound, the closer we got to the glacier, the bigger it was. You remember the guy watching the baseball game thinking to himself, why is the ball getting bigger? And then it hit me. (laughs) But it is true. It is true. The closer to God we are, the bigger he is. The closer to God we are, the greater the thoughts of God. The closer we are to God, the greater calm, the greater contentment, the the bigger the thoughts of God. Not little thoughts, not mean thoughts. But the farther away from God we are, the more unwise he seems. He seems. The, the, the farther we are away from God, the, the less powerful he seems. So the first and foremost thing is that, is that high view of God. We must maintain a high view of God. And I believe, too, that what we do has to reflect that. The care of the facilities needs to reflect a high view of God. Uh, our stewardship of, of what God has provided us. And by the way, that happens here. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And in our own lives, there ought to be a demonstration of the fact that we have a high view of God. But I need to move to the second thing, because from the high view of God also comes, secondly, a regard for the scriptures as the absolute authority for faith and practice, a regard for the scriptures, the scriptures as the absolute authority for faith and practice. We looked here, we've received a... What it say here? It says here, knowing this first that no prophecy of the scripture is of greater or is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not an old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You and I understand the Bible makes it clear. It is an inspired book. It's a book that that was inspired by God. The writings are divine in origin and not human. We understand from 2 Timothy three sixteen all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. But the verses continue, that the man of God may be perfect, referring to him being complete. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And so because we have a high view of God, we have high regard for his word. It's not just the word of God. It's not just the word of God. It is the word of God. God. Psalm 119 gets read in a whole different light. You ask the average Christian who knows his Bible, say, what's Psalm 119 about? Oh, it's about the word of God, the word of God, about the statutes of God, the commandments of God. And that's fair to say. But I believe it's about the word of God, the statutes of the Lord, the testimonies of God. That's what gives them their weight. When we go to the scriptures, it is to be the absolute authority when it comes to salvation. Not the whims of men, not the dreams of men, not the opinions of men, not the majority vote. But the word of God gives us clear teaching regarding the issue of salvation. The word of God trumps tradition. The Word of God trumps dreams and visions. The Word of God has the, has the clear plan for salvation. It makes it clear that if, if anyone is to be right with God, he must put his faith and trust in the one who died, was buried, and rose again. That is the only remedy we have uh, for our sin problem. And so it is authoritative in regard to the truths regarding salvation. It is authoritative in regard to the truths regarding sanctification. And in other words, this old book gives us direction for living, gives us direction for living. So we have a high view of God. The absolute authority of the scriptures for faith and practice. There's a third thing very quickly and that is sound doctrine. It is out of the Bible we get sound doctrine and we'll, 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 we'll uh, regard the Bible highly if we have a high view of God. You see how it all just flows. High view of God, authority of the Bible for faith and practice. It is from that word we get sound doctrine. Look with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4 very quickly. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and looking here in verses, in beginning of verse 6. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 6. For the sake of time I'll begin reading this while you're getting there. 1 Timothy 4 6. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine whereunto thou hast attained. Look here, verse 13, we see this echo. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Verse 16, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. It is from the absolute word of God we get our, our doctrine. It is through the word of God we get our direction for living. The things the Bible tells us to embrace, we embrace. The things the Bible tells us to forbid, we forbid. And so we have, we have just three simple things, three non, non-negotiables, three essential non-negotiables. A high view of God, the absolute authority of the word of God, and then out of that sound doctrine. And you know what, you know what sound doctrine produces? On the basis of the fact that what a man believes affects how a man behaves on the basis of the fact that a man's creed affects his conduct, you know what sound doctrine from the word of God, from the word of, the, of God Almighty, you know what sound doctrine produces? Personal holiness. That's the fourth non, non-negotiable. The fourth non-negotiable. I hope I didn't say non-essential somewhere along the line. It's non-negotiable. Essential non-negotiable. Personal holiness. Our God is a holy God. We're told in 1 Peter uh, that, that because as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. 1 Peter 1 verses 15 and 16. Personal holiness. We live in a day and age where our grace is often used as an excuse to be sloppy. To live a sloppy life when, when we're supposed to live a life that demonstrates we are separated from the world but separated unto God. And that doesn't mean that we're, uh, uh, that we're arrogant legalists. There's no room for that. I'm not talking about that. But how has our faith affected how we behave? We behave just like the people who do not know our God. There are sins of the heart. There are sins externally. There are, li- there are lines that are blurred. But sound doctrine always produces personal holiness. And so a high view of God results also in personal holiness. What's at stake? If I if I don't, if the fact is, if I do not pursue holiness, then I forfeit close fellowship with God. Here's the next thing. We have the high view of God. We have the absolute authority of scripture for faith and practice. We have sound doctrine produced out of that personal holiness. Here's another fence slat that needs to be nailed that's out of all of those things things, and that is a reverence for the local church, a reverence for the local church. When you get an opportunity, I come into your reading, Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through through, through 31. And in Acts 20, 28 through 31, Paul makes some amazing declarations regarding the local church. He calls it the flock of God. He calls it the place that the, the people that Jesus has purchased with his own blood. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 18. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 18, the church is referred to as the body of Christ. It's not as a body. It is the body of Christ. The local church is the body of Christ. And so when we belittle the church, when we discount the church, we are discounting nothing less than the body of Christ. And so the local church needs to be reverenced. We'll guard the reputation of the church. We will will guard our own lives against sin. We'll pray for each other. We'll watch how we speak about the local church. It's not everything it ought to be, but it is the body of Christ. And I've got to give you the final thing. And this has already been touched on in Sunday school. And we would, we would say it's this first high view of God, high view of God. Secondly, absolute authority of Scripture for faith and practice. Thirdly, sound doctrine, sound doctrine out of those Scriptures. And sound doctrine produces fifth, or fourth the holy, holy living, holy living, personal holiness. And then there is, of course, a reverence for the local church. In a day and age where it's discounted and seen as obsolete, the Bible makes it clear local churches are absolutely necessary. When there was a problem in a church, God did not tell the church to disband. God didn't have a plan B. It is still plan A. God's desire to to win the world and to disciple believers is still the local church. And then finally, a respect for our heritage, a respect for our heritage. You know, it's amazing how quickly ministries go away. There are towns at one time that housed mega churches and yet you drive by those properties that once would bring in thousands of people and the churches are now developed into other businesses. The church buildings are now other businesses. A congregation that was once vibrant is now non-existent. It can happen also to Bible colleges. has happened to a number of them. Schools that were vibrantly training men and women to serve God that now are not anywhere to be found. It's, it's amazing how quickly things could go away. And Calvary Baptist Church is not immune. So these fence slats that we've talked about, this, this backbone that, that on which everything else hangs, this backbone that will let us stand through the winds of culture, the winds of doctrine. That backbone is essential. A first generation comes along and I'm so thankful for those in Ukaipa that had a vision for Calvary Baptist Church. Who had a vision to plant a church here that would preach the gospel here in this community. I'm thankful for the people that, that met in those first days instead of pews sitting on folding chairs. I'm thankful for people that would pull those chairs out of storage and set them up as we understand and I'm thankful for the people that opened up their homes for this new congregation to meet in. I'm thankful for people that would go over to the to the lodge getting things ready for Sunday morning service and they and brother Pounder would tell us how that he and his boys would sweep up the cigarette butts and and sweep up all of the the alcohol cans and get everything set up for church to be held. I'm thankful for people that came out and looked at this property when when it was just a dream in somebody's eye that there would be a church here one day. I'm thankful for people that sacrificed, people that, that, that did that which was costly. And some of those people didn't even get to enjoy what they were sacrificing for. But they did that that we might enjoy that. See, the first generation of builders, they see with passion with what's going on. And people who are builders, that first generation who came in with a vision and came in with passion, they may have seen things go up and down. But when they went, when they went down, they just rolled up their sleeves and would rebuild again and move forward. The generation that watched them, their kids, they watched them. They watched them make those sacrifices. And so what the happens is that that next generation that follows that first generation, very often they move into the mentality that we're going to protect what mom and dad built. We're going to protect it. We're going to be the guardians of this. And that's what they do. They're in protection mode, which often leads to a survival mode. We're just going to hang on. Our, our goal is just to keep the doors open. That's all we want. Just keep the doors open. And of course, you know, that is a, a spiral trek into into uh, ending. (laughs) It's a trek into finally closing the doors. But if that second generation manages to keep the doors open, there's a third generation who never saw the nails being hammered, who never saw the chairs being brought in, who never saw uh, the property having all all the weeds removed. They never saw any of that. And so what they do, they have a tendency to take what they have for granted with no sense of protecting it, with, with no sense of, of building some more, they just take it for granted. That third generation is often called the squanderer. So how do you prevent that? By having a high view of God. By going to the scriptures as the sole authority for faith and practice. By drawing from the scriptures sound doctrine and letting that doctrine create in our lives personal holiness. And that same scriptures that tell us, tell us of our Christ also tell us that the, the church is a precious thing in the sight of God. It's the pillar and ground of the truth. And that same scriptures, those same scriptures tell us to have a, a respect for those who've gone before us. And I believe that Calvary's got some great ministry ahead. I'm so thankful for our pastor. I'm so thankful for him and his family. And everywhere I go, I talk about the things that God is doing at Calvary Baptist Church. Let's continue to have those things that make us stand. Let's take the baton, pass it on to the next generation. Take the torch and pass it on to the next generation. You know, it's a lot easier to just beat the next generation with the baton. Don't do that. (laughs) Not good, not helpful. It's a lot easier just to torch the next generation. That's not helpful either. When you pass the baton, you begin to cheer on that next generation that's running the next leg. You ran your leg. Ran it well. You find people that are in step with you. People that are in your lane. Pass on the vision. Pass on, pass on the burden. Pass on, pass on the concept that we have a high view of God. Pass on the concept of, a, of the Bible being the sole authority for faith and practice. And I, I would say that today as we, as we uh, bring this to a conclusion that we had to renew our commitment to do those things. Oh, dear God, give me a high view of you. Help me to see you high and lifted up. Lord, forgive me when I've leaned to my own understanding instead of, instead of bending your word. Perhaps the greatest attack against the scriptures comes from those who claim to know the Bible but do not know the Bible. From those who claim to believe the Bible but they do not, they do not know what the Bible says. Let's not be those people.